Father God, um, most of us who have experienced life up to this point know that it's filled with blessings and filled with struggles, and many times they come at exactly the same time. And that's indeed what the McIntyre family is uh, experiencing right now, the, the blessing of you opening the door for Scott to have an exposure like this in culture in which, Lord, as you know, his humble heart wanting to be used by you and for you and uh, to use the gifts and talents you've given him. So, God, we would just pray your hand would continue to be upon him, that you hold his heart and mind, keep him very close to you, and God, use him as you see fit. And uh, he knows and we know that his life is in your hands. And so uh, we just can't wait to see what you're going to increasingly do as uh, you move Scott along. Father, we would pray too for his family right now. And I can't imagine the stress of having to travel between here and, and Hollywood and, and uh, then now with Caitlin needing surgery. And so God, we just pray that you would give the doctors skill and wisdom, that God, you would just uh, put a hedge of protection around that family and around Caitlin at this time. And uh, that Lord, you would uh, just pour out your goodness and your blessing upon them. God, if I don't miss my guess, there um, is one thing that at the very least all of us share as we come into this room together this morning, and that is that we are, are, are seeking after spiritual truth, uh, truth that we need from your word about Jesus who came to this earth and forever changed uh, our lives and this world. And so God, as we uh, look to your book now and uh, talk about this theme of older age, what happens as we get older, I pray you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And we pray these things only and always in the matchless name of Jesus. And we all say together, amen. Well, uh, let, let's face it. Let's just get really honest right away. And that is that getting older in many ways is no fun. Amen. I mean, if you've gotten older at all here this morning, though there are lots of ups with it, in many ways it's just no fun. It's like the old man who was driving down the freeway when his cell phone rang. And when he answered, he heard his wife's voice urgently warning him, honey, please be careful. I just heard on the news that there's a car going the wrong way on I-17. To which the man said, it's not just one car, sweetheart, it's hundreds of them. <laughs> I mean, that's just a bummer if that's you, right? It's just hard getting old. I, I hear stories like that from many of you all week long. Some of you are going, I don't get it, honey. She'll explain it to you later. All right? In trying to research exactly when old age begins, one study I found noted that for the average person, now get this, hearing begins to change in one's mid-40s, vision and touch in the mid-50s, taste in, by the late 50s, and smell by the mid-70s. And you know, when I read that, I thought, you know, I'm 45 years old this year, and so according to the research from here on out, it's a downhill slide for my five senses, right? And it is. I mean, any of you who have gotten over that hump of middle age, you know that getting old can be a difficult thing. And the question becomes, when does old age begin? I get asked that a lot, you know, and I'm not stupid enough to answer it. But the reality is I can share with you what some of the experts say. The government thinks that you're old at about age 60. That's when the Older, American, Older Americans Act of 1965 kicks in. At 62, many people can select early retirement from Social Security, and anywhere between 65 and 67, full retirement kicks in for Social Security. And then you got the gerontologists. These are people who study old age. 
for a living. And they actually have two general classifications for old age. This is great. They have what they call young old age from about 55 when you can join the AARP up until 74. And then what they call, I'm not kidding, old old age from 75 on up. All right? So you got young old age, old old age with a huge wide spread between when it starts. And though obviously nobody exactly knows, I mean, can nail down when old age begins, two things are for sure for you and I here this morning, and it's this. And that is that most of us are going to get there someday. And as a general population percentage, our country is aging. We're getting older. It's true. In fact, check this out. The 2000 census data revealed that at the turn of the century, just nine years ago, there were approximately 35 million Americans over the age of 65. 35 million. And though that sounds like a lot, that's only about 12% of the population of our country that's over 65. But check this out. When the first set of baby boomers turned 60 just three years ago, which is just on the cusp of old age by most definitions, one of the reasons that politicians were and are so afraid about Social Security is that there are more than 76 million baby boomers in our country still alive now. And over this next 15 years, they're going to be entering into their 60th year in droves. In fact, in 2006, the first year that the baby boomers turned 60, one baby boomer was turning 60 about every 15 seconds. That's pretty often, right? So that means that just in the course of my sermon introduction, you got about 15 to 20 baby boomers who turned 60 just since we started this sermon. But check this out. Because the number of baby boomers grew in number each respective year when they were born between 1946 and 1957, by the year 2015, the number of boomers turning 60 in America will be one about every seven seconds. Let that sink in. More than twice as many people each second will be entering into what my parents call the fourth quarter six years from now than three years ago. I mean, truly, folks, old age is not just something for our parents anymore. It's something that all of us are most likely going to face someday. And for us baby boomers, it started a few years ago and like a runaway train. It's only picking up speed as it goes along. And so the question becomes, how do we make sense of this God-given season of life? I mean, on a spiritual and relational level, how are we to understand, or what are we to understand about old age, and what should our perspective be, especially when it comes to God and the spiritual realm? And if you've been with us throughout this series, you know that we have been relying on a set of paintings uh, done about 160 years ago by a famous American landscape painter by the name of Thomas Cole. And by allowing these paintings to guide us, we're matching what we see in these paintings with what the Bible says about what each leg of the voyage of life is all about. So we did youth, we did middle, middle age, we did childhood, and now we get this week to this idea of old age. And so we put this print, the last print of Cole's four prints, in your bulletin there, and you want to pull it out right now, and then we're going to put a copy of it up here on the screen. And as you look at this final and fourth painting of the voyage of life, there are three initial things that I want you to notice that will help propel us into our first understanding of old age. Three initial things. First, notice the shoreline. It's almost gone. The shoreline is almost gone. In other words, the voyage is now taking a whole different kind of journey. 
Gone are the flowery shores of childhood, gone are the bright and mountainous banks of youth, and gone are even the rocky and rough shores of adulthood. I mean, simply notice that the shores of earthly life are themselves just about gone in this picture. As Cole himself says, and I quote, a few barren rocks are seen through the gloom, the last shores of the world. And yet it's not over, not at all. It's just that something new is about to begin. We'll get to that in a minute. But before that, notice a second key thing about this painting, and that's the boat. It's about done for, right? (laughs) The boat is about done for. No more flowers are left in it. It's bruised and worn. Both the rudder at the stern and the hourglass held by the angel at the bow have been totally broken off. And this is significant for Cole here in his painting. For as he says, the broken hourglass of the boat show that time is nearly ended. The chains of corporal existence are falling away. In other words, time's run out for this old guy. And obviously the man in the boat is fully aware of this because like his boat, he too is tired and aged, worn and weary. And yet interestingly, he's not distraught or even sad. He's actually somewhat relieved and anticipatory. And when we ask why, we quickly notice the third thing about this painting and that is this, that this man is looking upon the ocean, a symbol of eternity. You pick up on that there? It's a symbol of eternity, the ocean. And so in one sense, the voyage of life is coming to an end, but it's also starting anew as it enters another phase of the journey, an eternal one, as this man sees this vast and endless ocean with its bright and inviting light breaking through, and he lifts his arms in kind of a peaceful way as if to invite it, as if to say, ah, I'm finally here. And so with these three things noted about Cole's fourth painting here, the diminishing shoreline, the battle-worn boat with time running out, and the ocean of eternity, let's not miss the first key thing that this all teaches us here, that the Bible affirms, and that is that this life is certainly not all there is, and the older we get, the more we know it. Have you found that yet in life? This life is certainly not all there is. In fact, the Bible calls it but a breath, blade of grass, here today, gone tomorrow. And the older that we get, the more that we tend to know it. I want you guys to look at what the Bible has to say about this exact idea. If you brought a Bible with you, I want you to open to Psalm chapter 14. Psalm's about halfway through the whole Bible, 14. And if you didn't bring a Bible, turn over your outline. The Scripture's there. You can look at it in black and white. We'll also put it up here on the screen. And listen to what Psalm chapter 14, verses 1 to 2, has to say to us about this idea. It says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. And so two things you don't want to miss here. First, it's telling us that God exists, right? A loving, sovereign, just, and holy God exists. And in making no bones about it, the psalmist here tells us that only a fool would deny something like this, that God is really real. And then secondly, don't miss it, it tells us that he inhabits an eternal realm called heaven. It says there in verse 2, the Lord looked down from where? From heaven. 
It's fascinating. That word heaven in the Old Testament literally means the sky, including the stars and the space. And yet most commentators point out in this passage that it's obviously being used figuratively here, not referring to a geographical location or a time continuum or something like that, but that it's referring to the eternal realm that God inhabits, a realm outside of time and space that's being referred to here, unlimited and eternal in scope, heaven. And the point is, folks, is that as people age, as they move into this fourth quarter of life, they begin to realize on a much more profound and experiential level that this life is certainly not all there is, that God and heaven are real. And so they begin to set their sights healthily on what might be next. To use Cole's painting, they begin to look out at the ocean of eternity. And please don't get me wrong. It's not, that there any aren't, aren't, it's not that there aren't any old atheists or naturalists in their 80s who are denying God. There are. But it's fascinating. As a pastor who didn't grow up in a very religious environment, so I've been on both sides of the fence, I don't meet too many older people who aren't at the very least wondering what might be next. Do you? In other words, I don't meet too many people on their deathbed when they're 85 or 90 saying, well, that's it. Lights out. Say goodbye to me forever. See you never again. I mean, I find that most people in their 80s, even if they were ardent atheists most of their life, tend to be like Christopher Reeves. Remember him, the guy who played Superman in the Superman movies that then had that tragic accident with the horse and became a quadriplegic? It's fascinating, in his book, Still Me, which was an autobiography, he cited the fact that even after his accident, he was a staunch atheist who didn't believe in God, didn't believe in in any kind of rhyme and reason to this universe, just all chance, and that this is just what happened to him, and he's going to get through it himself. It's fascinating, I read an article about a month or two before he died, that as his death started to get closer, Christopher Reeves actually started to rethink that, and he could be found in church on Sunday mornings just kind of quiet about it all. I find that that tends to happen to people as they get older. They tend to kind of rethink some of the godless philosophies that they had when they were younger. Uh, Natalie Portman is the famous actress, many of you know who she is, who played Padme Amidala on the more recent Star Wars movies. And in an interview in Rolling Stone magazine a few years ago, this very young actress who then was in her teens, now she's in her late 20s, who had been raised in a liberal Jewish home, had this to say about God and the afterlife. Look up here on the screen. She said, and I quote, I don't believe in that, the concept of an afterlife. I believe that this is it, and it's the best way to live. You know, as a pastor, when I read that, obviously that jumped off the page to me, because I'm thinking, now you're on my territory. And when she said that, when I read that, you know what I thought to myself? I thought, I wonder if she's going to be saying that when she's 80. I thought, I wonder. I mean, I wish I could be alive then. When she's 80 years old, 60 years after she makes a statement like this, I wonder if she'll be saying the same thing. Because here's the reality, folks. It's one thing to say something like that when you're in painting number two of Cole's Voyage of Life series, right? I mean, it's one thing to say that when you're charging the hill and climbing the mountain and forging the paths and building the castles. But what most people find is after you go through painting number three, where the terrain gets rough and life sets in and reality shows you what reality is, you start to rethink things like that. Why? Because the older you get, you realize that maybe this life is not all there is. Uh, Please see, folks, 
There's something hardwired into us, the Bible says, that intuitively tells us about our Creator and that this world is not all that there is and that we were made for something else or even more precisely, somewhere and someone else. And this brings us then to the second key thing that Cole's painting teaches us here about a healthy spiritual perspective as this life draws to a close. And this is the heart of it all. And that is that heaven is very real. And it is reserved for those who know and follow Jesus Christ. We've got to wrestle with this right now, folks. But, but this is what the Bible says. This is what Cole's going to affirm to us. That heaven is real. And it's reserved to those who know and follow Jesus Christ. I want you to look with me again at Cole's fourth painting here and notice three further things that it is showing us here about eternal life as this life fades away. First, and probably the most powerful thing in all of this painting, notice the bright light of God's glory shining through the opening clouds, welcoming the voyager home as contrasted with the darkness of this world. Most people who are into art point this out about this painting, that it's probably one of the starkest contrasts between darkness and light out of all four paintings that he painted in this series. So you got the bright light of eternity and of heaven shining through, and then the backdrop of a very, very dark past, the dark earth that this guy has just come out of. Think about it. Light and darkness, two often repeated themes in the New Testament they refer to our salvation and hope in Christ. And then secondly, as, and this is almost impossible to see on your reprints, but it's definitely visible in the originals at the National Gallery and the ones we have blown up in the foyer there. And I've tried to blow it up for you here on the screen here. Notice the angels descending from the clouds. A further sign of God welcoming this voyager home to a very real place called heaven. In other words, you see the, the, the angel there, the smaller one, down at the bottom there, kind of coming toward the voyager. But when you look real close, you can actually see a group of five, at least five, more angels coming down to welcome this voyager home. I mean, it's absolutely reminiscent of Luke chapter 15, in which it says that the angels of heaven rejoice when one sinner repents and comes home than all the other ones who are already home. The angels are rejoicing here, welcoming the weary traveler home. And then thirdly, notice obviously the guardian spirit guiding the voyager toward the light and the angels showing him the way to eternal life as his time draws near. I mean, everyone needs direction at times in their lives to be shown the way. And so this guardian spirit is now showing the voyager the final way home. Now, I want you to hang on to these three things. Ponder those three things, and as you do, consider this. And that is that Thomas Cole was a Christian. He was a Christian. And I don't mean some wishy-washy, mamby-pamby, watering-down-the-truth-of-his-faith kind of Christian that existed back then and still does today. But I'm talking about a Christian who believed God in His Word and believed the revelation of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. In fact, at the time of Cole's death, it's fascinating. He was working on a five-part series of paintings that he never got to finish called The Cross and the World. Give me a click here, guys. And you can see an unfinished painting behind me there. And this is actually a five-part series that was based on John Bunyan's classic story, The Pilgrim's Progress, in which Cole was bent on depicting the centrality of Jesus' cross as the only thing that could bring forgiveness to the human soul and bring us to God. And so given all of the biblical imagery and allusions in Cole's four paintings here, as well as the other ones, we know that he believed and trusted 
in what the Bible says about this world and the next. And so with that understanding, I want to take you to one more passage here this morning that will help us understand what eternity is all about and how to get there. And it's one of the last chapters, it's the last chapter, well almost, in the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. And so if you bought a Bible, I want you to turn to the very end of it, and I want you to turn to the Re Revelation chapter 21, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 here. Okay, it is the second to last chapter. I had to check that one out. All right, so it's the second to last chapter of the Bible, right? Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Listen to what it says. This is profound. It says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away, and he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And now pause right there for a second, folks. And notice with me that at the very least, this is telling us two things. And that is that heaven is a very real place and that it won't be boring. Did you pick up on that there? That heaven is real and it's not going to be boring. God himself is present fully and physically, wiping away all pain and tears. And notice that it says he's going to make all things new. And so if you're like me, a guy who likes new cars, new houses, new songs, new sights, new sensations, figuratively speaking, that's heaven. In other words, though we don't know much of what heaven is going to be like because passages like these are not all that common and they don't give us the detail that we want, what we do know is that it's going to blow us away with the presence of God and all that he will bring. And mark my words, no one's going to be standing in the corner with another group of people saying, what, this is it? What a drag. I mean, that's not going to be happening. That's not going to happen when you and I get to heaven. Heaven is real, and believe me, it's going to make this the worst or the best day here look like a concentration camp. It's going to make the nicest spread up in Troon or Paradise Valley look like a dump. It will. I mean, the reality is heaven is going to blow you and me away. Now, with that understanding, let's read on in Revelation 21 and notice what it says next. Pick up at verse 5b. It says, and he, meaning the voice from the throne, said, write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. If you underline your Bible, underline those three words. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. Right? Underline that too. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, don't miss what is going on here, folks. For something has brought a portion of humankind and God back together. Did you pick up on that? Something has caused God to, God to say that he or she will be my son. So focus on those two phrases, it is done and without cost. It is done. Though in this context it's obviously referring to the end of all time and God's work on earth, what most commentators point out is that that little phrase, it is done, is very eerily like a phrase Jesus said when he was on this earth. Do you remember that? When on the cross, Good Friday, he said what? It is finished. It is done. It is finished. Now, when Jesus said it is finished, what did he mean? Does anybody know? 
Well, what he meant is that he was paying the penalty on that cross, taking our sin upon him, the penalty that we should have paid so that we might be brought to God. See, the Bible makes it very clear that sin gets in the way of, between us and God, just as sin gets in the way of any vital relationship. And sin needs to be forgiven. And instead of God just turning a blind eye to all of it, because that wouldn't be just, God said that there needs to be a price paid for sin, and that price was the sending, coming, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. So what most commentators argue is that when Jesus was on the cross and he said, it is finished, what he meant was, was dying on a cross for our sins so that we might be brought to God, the penalty paid, it is now finished. And in Revelation 21, what many argue is that now, as Jesus has given plenty of people time to come to him and to trust him and to, and to repent and turn to him, someday time is going to end and God once again is going to say what? It is done. As C.S. Lewis says, the curtain comes down, play over that someday that's going to happen. And isn't it fascinating then that it then says that this water of life, this, e, the, e, the, this eternal life, is given without cost. Now, what do you think that's about, folks? Given without cost. Again, what most Bible experts point out is that this is a clear allusion to what the New Testament means by the fact that salvation is a free gift that it's given only to those who trust in Christ and Him alone. Not their good works, not this balanced scale in which I said, well, I wasn't an axe murderer, so God might as well let me into heaven. No, none of that stuff. That it's given to those who realize that their good works are not enough, that they can't earn their way to heaven, and so they rely on Christ. Remember, it is finished, and His work on the cross through faith, they rely on Him as their entranceway into eternal life. It's a gift freely given without cost. And all I can tell you is that this makes sense. Some of the most powerful and profound things that you and I experience in life are given without cost, and we appreciate them the most when we realize what an awesome, what an awesome thing it is to be given a gift. You know, Pat mentioned that, um, that he and I went to uh, Israel here recently, and, and I'd never been to Israel. I got a master's degree in divinity, studied the Bible for years, been a pastor for 20-plus years, a senior pastor for 10 years, and never had a chance to go to Israel. And uh, one of the reasons is, is because it's just so doggone expensive to go. And, and you know, trying to, to raise your kids and prepare for college and all those things, I could just never justify for me on my salary, you know, taking a trip to Israel and all that. And, uh, and yet what, what Pat explained to me is that these tour companies know that. They want pastors to go, obviously, to be with their people. So unlike many other tours, what they do is that if a church puts together a tour to Israel, for this many people you take, you can bring one of the pastors along pro bono. I never knew that. So I'm like, well, hey, let's go to Israel. So anyways, um, so... But, but it really isn't free because there's an incredible amount of work to do, as you can imagine, getting ready for a trip like this. So the pastor's kind of the administrative head of it, you know, constantly talking with the tour company, making sure everything's in line and all the details are down. And then when you're there, you're doing a lot of work. But, but you see, in a church like Scottsdale Bible, Pat did all of that, not me, right? We all understand that. So not only did I get to go free, but I didn't even have to do any of the work. And trust me, everybody on this trip knew that. Nobody thanked me for all the work that I put into this trip. Not one person. I mean, they thanked Pat all day long, and they should, because that guy worked like crazy. I was just like one of the guys, you know? And, and because of my biblical knowledge, I stepped in and corrected the tour guide about once every five minutes. But other than that, you know, it was just kind of like, you know, I, I was along for the ride with everybody. And, and it just reminded me what, what it is sometimes in life and how appreciative you get to be able to experience a grace gift like that. You ever had that happen to you? 
to experience that. And you think about it. What would have happened if I had turned that gift down? What if I would have said, as I probably will in the future, hey, you know what, just can't take the time off, just too busy for it. Or you know what, I've gone once, not going to go again. What would happen if I turned the gift down? Well, very simple. I wouldn't have received the gift, amen? I just wouldn't have gone. And uh, they would have probably given it to someone else. I mean, that's just the way life works. Please see, it's no different with God. We were in a mess. We are in a mess as a human race before Almighty God. Our sins, as the Bible says, are a stench in his nostrils. I mean, they've gotten in the way of us and him. And so the only thing that can bring forgiveness is for God to do something about it. And that's why he sent Christ. And Christ is called the free gift of God, the free gift of eternal life. But it's a gift that has to be received, amen? I mean, God can go only so far in dying on a cross for our sins, resurrecting his son from the dead, ascending him into heaven, giving us the Bible that shows us the way of truth, bringing friends around you to help you understand that. I mean, think of all the things God has done to get your attention. You gotta respond. You gotta receive him. And if you don't, it's like turning a trip down. But for those that do respond, it's awesome. That's what Revelation 21, 1 through 7 is telling us, is that that gift of eternal life, that, that river, that ocean of eternity, is now yours. We'll see what this means in just a second here. And just so we understand that we're reading this right, look at verse 8. This is sobering, but we've got to wrestle with this for a second. It says, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars... Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And we say, whoa, tough words. I know. In fact, some of you grew up in what we call hellfire and brimstone churches. Raise your hand if you grew up in hellfire brimstone church. Not too many today. I mean, they were really, really popular back in the 50s and 60s. It was kind of part of the evangelical culture. And uh, you grew up in a church in which every week somebody was trying to scare you into heaven, right? Scare you out of hell into heaven with just this idea of hellfire and brimstone. And, and many of you didn't even know where they got that. Like, where does the Bible ever use phrases like hellfire and brimstone? Well, it's Revelation 21.8. It's actually one of the very few verses that talks about this. And it's sad that some churches, by the way, used to harp so much on this because as we've just seen, not, not, not try to add this all up, you got seven verses that are nothing but positive and life-giving and talking to us about what we need to do positively in order to come into the kingdom, one verse of warning, right? One verse! So maybe one-eighth of the time, if you wanted to be empirical about it, you could talk about the negative stuff. But the reality is, is that as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, it's the love of Christ that compels us, as Romans 2 says, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance, not just this idea of fear. Because as John says in 1 John 4, fear is about punishment and perfect love casts out all fear. But the reality is, is that this is a point, and it's a sobering one at that, that for those who choose not to take God up on his offer of eternal life through faith and trust in Christ, then by default, don't miss this, they've made their choice. And it's a choice that they will spend eternity in what the Bible calls a second death away from God and all that he provides. And I know in our rather broad and inclusive and non-judgmental culture, this is a difficult thing to realize, that God just might be this way. Let me just say this one thing. And that is that if you really truly believe in justice, if, if you really believe in morality, if you really believe in good versus evil, and then if conversely you believe in things like forgiveness and mercy, then guess what? On a spiritual level, heaven and hell have to be realities. They have to. I mean, God has to be true to the fabric of this universe. He has to be true to this idea of justice. If God turned a blind eye to justice, all of you and me would scream. 
We would. We'd say, God, no, we need justice. We need justice. This person hurt me, and that person did this in society, and they did this. We can't just turn a blind eye to that. You know what God says? I don't. I don't turn a blind eye to that. Every soul, every person will be accountable someday to me. Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's just part of justice. But the cool thing is, folks, God could have left us there, and he didn't. He decided in history past 2,000 years ago, this is what Revelation 21 is talking about, to give us Christ. It is finished, it is done as a sacrifice for our sins so that we can choose now to come into a forgiving, eternity-giving, lifelong relationship with God the Father. Isn't that amazing? And that's what Sachi was talking about. And the cool thing is, is that you can grow up anywhere in this world. You can be rich, you can be poor, you can be born in this class or that class, any race. We're all on an even playing field when it comes to God. And he says, all of you have a chance to follow me through my son Christ. And when you do, when you finally and fully place your trust in Christ, then the third and most wonderful reality of old age can be yours. You ready for this? It's our last point this morning. And that is that those who believe and follow Christ can die with both peace and anticipation in their lives. Man, we're at the summit right now, folks. Those who believe and follow Christ can die with both peace and anticipation. You know, as much as the thought of our own death scares many of us beyond measure, let me give you a stark reality here this morning. People do it every day. Do you all understand that? People die every day. I love how Billy Graham once said it. He's not known as a very funny person, but I thought this was funny. He once said that death is the most democratic experience of life because we all get a chance to participate. And he's right. I mean, for those of us who complain, I don't get a voice. Guess what? Someday you're going to get a voice when it comes to this idea of dying. And you're going to die. And even further, what you need to see is that for thousands of years now, Christians have died, and the vast majority of them have died with the hope and light of Christ in their hearts, so much so that one of the time-tested, most time-tested and empirically validated truths you will come across in this life is the one right before us now that you look close, and those who believe and follow Christ, many of them, most of them, really it should be all of them, can die with peace and anticipation in their souls. It's true, fear or not. I love how Paul shows this to us in 2 Timothy 4. He says this, he says, For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. Now get this, he says, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. I mean, do you get the sense of peace and anticipation here? says, my time has come. I've fought the fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. Now is laid up for me like treasures beyond I could ever imagine from the Lord. And I love how he includes you and me in this when he says, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing, meaning any of us who have a relationship with Christ and long to see him face to face. And that's the point, folks, is that it doesn't matter whether you're like my friend Tina, who died a few years back at the age of 39 from cancer, or my friend Errol in Cleveland, who died in his mid-50s unexpectedly of a heart attack. Or my grandmother, who died in her 80s of natural causes. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter your age, sex, race, vocation, education, or anything. What matters is whether you've come to a point of accepting and trusting Christ for eternal life. 
And if you've had, then you can die whenever that day comes with peace and anticipation in your soul. And all I can tell you, folks, is how many times is that I've witnessed this hundreds of times in my pastoral career, and it's one of the most powerful things you ever see. I, I encourage you, if you ever get a chance to be with somebody who's dying, as morose as that might sound, if that person knows Christ, and if they're centered on Him in that moment, it is one of the most powerful experiences you can ever witness. To see somebody say and look at you and say, you know, I'm going to miss you. I'm going home. I can't wait to see Christ face to face. It's a powerful thing. And hundreds of times as a pastor, I've gotten the privilege to be with people like that. You see, these are people who know the words of the great 17th century English poet George Herbert when he said this. You're going to love this. He said, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel made him a gardener. Don't you love it? Death used to be an executioner. But the gospel made him a gardener. And because Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible says that those who die in him, meaning in faith in him, are also going to rise someday. And that you're going to be with him. As the Bible says, away from the body, present with the Lord. It's exciting. And so the question is for you and I as we wrap up here this morning, is how do you want to go? How do you want to leave this world? And maybe even more to the point, how do you want to live the remaining days of your life? I mean, what's it going to be for you? And really, when you think about it, folks, there's only two practical applications of today's message. Two things that I need you to take into this week. First is that question that needs to be burning in your mind of have you prepared yourself for eternity? Are you ready to meet God? Do you know what to say and what not to say? I mean, if you ask the average American today, you know, if you saw God today and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? What does the average American say? Because I'm a good person, right? I'm a good person. I'm not an axe murderer. I don't cheat too much on my income taxes. I tell only white lies. I'm kind of loving to my friends. I think the scales have balanced out right. I should be led into heaven. And that's the wrong answer. It really is. I mean, think about it. You're saying, if you say that to me, that'd be fine. I'm just Jamie. Try saying that as Joe said earlier to a holy and just God, to a God that has said, you've offended me. You've not lived up to my standards. Some of you say, what do you mean I haven't lived up to God's standard? <laughs> I challenge you, just take the Ten Commandments for crying out loud, right? I mean, there's hundreds of commandments in the Old Testament. Just focus on the top ten and you're going to start to blush. You know, because some of them you're going to do great on. You know, uh, honor your father and mother. Boy, I've been doing that for a while. Okay, when I was 18 I didn't, but now I do, you know. And, and so I honor my father and mother, you know. Um, and, and, and maybe some others you might do well on, you know, but then you get to others ones. They're like maybe adultery. You haven't committed adultery in your life. You've been faithful to your spouse. That's great. But then you get to other ones, you know, which it says like, you shall not covet your neighbor's possessions. You ever looked at your neighbor's BMW and said, boy, I'd like to have that. And eh, just broke a Ten Commandment, right? <laughs> it, it says you have no idols in your life. No idols at all. I mean, can you imagine that? No idols, nothing that you put before God. Can any of you say that? No. I mean, I'm telling you, when we just compare our lives against the Ten Commandments, we're dead. We're dead. And that's why we need forgiveness. That's why we need Christ. So the first thing you need to be thinking in your mind is, have I prepared for eternity? If God were to say to me, why should I let you into heaven? Your answer would be, because of what Jesus did for me. Because God, you sent your son 2,000 years ago, and he died on a wooden cross that he shouldn't have died on, and yet when he died there, you put the sins of the world, even my sins, upon him. And I, in humble uh, worship and recognition, I, I, I see that. And I accepted Jesus and his payment for me. And that's all I can plead, God. That's all I can plead. Boy, if that's you, if that is you, 
you can die with peace and anticipation in your soul. And then the second thing I need you to think of as we wrap up here this morning is how are you going to live out the remainders of your days? In other words, how are you going to make them count? You know, it's one thing to be saved. It's one thing to know that you're going to be going to heaven. But then there's this whole thing of, are you going to be changed this side of heaven? And the reality is, is that God hopes that as you get older, you get more soft, more tender, more convicted about biblical truth and more other-centered. And that you continue to serve him and become kingdom players and less players of this world. It's fascinating. Bob Kane gave me a, a study here. Uh, Bob Kane is our pastor of Second Half Ministries here at Scottsdale Bible Church. And he gave me a, a study that was done about 40, 50 years ago in which they talk about two theories, the theory of dis disengagement and the activity theory. Fascinating. The theory of disengagement basically says this, that as people get older, and we all know this, they have a tendency to want to disengage from those around them, right? From, from, from being serving as much as church, from obviously their jobs, from doing other things, and they just want to kind of live out their days, sort of sitting on the porch watching everything go by or playing around a golf now and then. It's a theory of disengagement. And yet what they have found is that those who are the happiest and those who tend to live longer live by what they call the activity theory. Listen to what they say, and I quote, they say, older people must stay active and involved to continue to maintain their own integrity. They say the nature of these activities may change by becoming, for example, less physically stressful. However, they must be as important as other previous activities were in the person's life. What are they saying? They're simply saying this activity theory is, that is, is to stay engaged. To stay involved in serving other people, involved in your church, involved with God, involved with the grandkids and the kids. And that as you age that way, not only might you live longer, but God might just use you in some of the most surprising ways than you can ever imagine. If you're at all confused on that, see Bob Kane, our pastor of Second Half Ministries, and he's got a lot for you to consider. Guys, we've had an awesome time in this series. That we've learned what childhood is about in part, what the youth days are about, what midlife can be about, and even now what our focus can be in old age. And as I always tell you at the end of a series, I just can't wait to see what God might do through our church if we really believed and lived this stuff. Amen? Why don't you bow with me and pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you, God, that you've not left us alone to our own devices, wondering who you are or where you are or what you're about, but that you've shown it to us in your word, in your revelation to us. As a father, as we've taken a look at Psalm 14 today, Revelation 21, even that passage out of 2 Timothy, we thank you, God, for the fact that you have revealed these things to us and helped us understand them rightly. And so, Father, as we focus on getting older here in our lives today, as difficult as it might be, may it not be a drag for us. May it be an exciting time of living well, of finishing well in the days that you've given us here, and then also, Lord, in anticipating the glory that awaits us as followers of your Son, Jesus. So thank you for this time here today. May you be honored and glorified in our lives this week, we pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. And the whole church says together, amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.